Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, joining me today on the Postcards from a Dying World podcast is an old, old, old friend of mine and um, hardcore legend from my home state of Indiana, David Tate, who I knew back in the day as lead vocalist for our hometown hero hardcore band with Authority, who <laughs> was pretty much uh, my favorite band when I was a young skateboarding um, punk rock lunatic. Um, but <laughs> coincidentally, already straight edge at that point and still to this day but dave tate thank you for joining me um on the postcards from dying world good to have you black lives matter dave agronoff black lives matter (laughs) well yeah we'll get into politics in a little bit i'm sure but the reason i wanted to start out with the most important thing sorry yeah of course um but uh, you're a longtime anti-racist. That's one of the things that I first like knew you for is, um, so I want to set the stage a little bit for like what, how I know you and so on and so forth is that in my hometown, Bloomington, Indiana, that's where you went to college at Indiana University. And well, Bloomington had a long punk rock tradition uh, at that point, starting back with the gizmos in the seventies and all that. There had never been a real, honest-to-goodness, hardcore band that's, that, that came out of, like, the New York City sound and, like, Chromax, things like that, until you came to college and started with Authority. And so in our town, uh, for, like, the high school kids, the high school punk rock kids, with Authority was, was our everything. It was our, big, it was our favorite band. And you put out two records, but what was really important at the time about With Authority for us is that With Authority was a very strong political and anti-racist band, and anti-racism was very important to you even back then. And um, so we'll talk about that. I want to set the stage, but where did you come from? Because you didn't grow up in Bloomington, Indiana. You grew up in Detroit. Can you give me how you got into punk rock and all that? Well, I think I got into, you know, I was into the new wave scene um, early on in the 80s, late 70s and 80s, um, which was easy to do because it was starting to get on the radio and, you know, that's just what some of us kids did. Um, I didn't get, I didn't start getting over into a more hardcore type of situation until I was in the, in the Marine Corps. I got a couple of years into the Marine Corps uh, when I started seeing, seeing the light and uh, I went pretty hardcore pretty quick when I was living out there. They're in Camp Pendleton, uh, Oceanside. So I, I started cutting my teeth in the punk rock hardcore scene at places like uh, Fender's Ballroom up in uh, L.A., uh, Long Beach, and then the Palomino Club down there in San Diego and stuff like that. So there's a couple different places that I'd, I spent a lot of time on going down I-5 and up I-5 and uh, back in the, in the late 80s, uh, really enjoying uh, that, that heyday of SoCal hardcore and punk rock. So what years are we talking about here for for uh, when you were in the Marine Corps out here at Camp Pendleton? Is that like yeah. January 86? Yeah, January 86 is when I got there and I left in July of 88. So for those two and a half years, we spent a lot of time 
making the, the weekend trips up and down the, up and down the coast. So you must have seen some pretty classic bands back in the day, like your flags and and seven seconds and things like that that were playing around that area. I'm sure like Yeah, you know, it's funny because for as long as I was around, I didn't see nearly as many bands as I should have, and there's quite a few that got away from me. But yeah, adolescence, bad religion when they were first starting, circle jerks. Uh, there's a great band out of San Diego back then called The Ninth, uh, Corrosion Conformity, Reagan Youth, all all those bands, Agnostic Front, The Exploited, all bands that we saw there at Fender's uh, legendary hardcore club up in um, up in Long Beach. Well, and I think one of the reasons why um, uh, With Authority became such an important influence on our town is that you had seen a lot of these bands that, uh, that we didn't see because we're a small college town and not every tour came through, but a lot of these bands, we were just starting to listen to your agnostic fronts, your sick of it alls and stuff like that. And so when somebody showed up in town who knew all that music and was starting a band who, you know, kind of took it to the next level, it was a big deal for us in, in Bloomington. But, um, and so when you graduated, or when you got out of the Marine Corps, right, and that's when you ended up in Indiana, how did you end up at Bloomington? I just... I'm really curious because, you know, what an influence you had on my town, right? Right. Well, I got out of Marines and uh, I started going to a school up in northern Michigan. And then my parents, my dad, uh, it was near the end of the auto industry in Pontiac, Michigan. So he was relocated there as soon as I got out of the Marines, um, starting my first year of school. So I basically just followed them to Indiana. And it was either Purdue or IU. And at that time I was getting out of the military and uh, could choose either school. I was accepted to both. And I chose IU just, um, I'm not sure exactly why I think it was more the reputation. Uh, it seemed more in my style uh, of a school. And so that's where I ended up. Well, and when I say that you had a big influence on my town, like, I mean it, like it was a big deal because in our hardcore scene, um, you were the one putting on the shows, you were bringing bands to town that, that most of us wouldn't have heard of otherwise. And some of those bands were just as influential on Bloomington's development too, like random bands like Random Conflict from Alabama, yeah. for example, which became very, mm -hmm. that band became very important to our scene, even though they were a band from Alabama. And right. um, I believe it was with authority, it was following with authority to DeKalb, Illinois, to a show, this is where the first time I saw Endpoint and Integrity and bands that became like the became really important to me in my high school year. So again, that was with authority's influence. But um, so when you showed up at Bloomington, like, did you have the the idea to start a band before you even like got to school, or was that something that came after getting there? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not sure what happened and 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 how it exactly started forming there in Bloomington. Now, I was in a band in SoCal when I was down there in the mid '80s called Man X, and that was actually my first band. Um, and then I was in another garage band up in uh, up in Detroit in the Detroit area prior to coming to to Bloomington. So I can't recall all of it, but uh, there was obviously an inclination to go in that direction. Um, and it didn't take long. I think it was in November of '89 that we first. Uh, me, Brad, and, and Bob, and uh, I think who we had last uh, first, it's hard to remember anymore who our first <laughs> bass player was at the time, but we all got together at that time. 
um, in a storage shed in the middle of the winter. And that's what we started doing in, in fall of 89. So we were playing live by May of 90. So from there, uh, like you said, about four years in Bloomington and build up a pretty good scene, pretty healthy traveling schedule. We were getting out quite a bit in the Midwest and uh, I'm not sure what the, what the drive was there, but you know, I was, I was getting pretty renegade at that time. I'd left the military and I had seen enough of that and started going pretty uh, ornery and hardcore. And I took a lot of things to uh, as hard, as hard and heavy as I could. And, um, included music and that's how we ended up with what we had i think the difference Dave, with us and why we took off in the direction we did and had the sound that we had was i was a punk rock guy and the guys i was playing with were more metal guys you know along the obituary uh type of world and uh so when you mix the the crow mags hardcore style that i was interested in with you know they're more the death metal and heavier metal stuff that's how you ended up with that style we um we had interestingly Which enough the, the grunge the scene time. was coming out, so you got a lot of that. Well, what's, it's funny because with Authority was ahead of the times with that stuff, and and especially the second seven-inch system screwed is is very metalcore before metalcore became a thing. And um, it, it's funny of all your records, uh, the one that I go back and listen to that that title track, System Screwed, I think is it's funny because it wasn't my favorite song back in the day, but now I listen to that song and I say okay, they nailed it on that one. <laughs> they nailed the sound. And that song is the one that holds up really well for me today. But anyways, I, but the, the thing about, and I have an interesting relationship with, with Authority because of my situation with Bloomington. Um, I, I have severe dyslexia and I went to a boarding school for kids with learning disabilities out, out of state, the next state over. So I was going to school in Carbondale, Illinois, you know, five hour drive away and I would come home on weekends and the, and with authority played the first couple shows while I was gone. And people were like telling me like, Oh dude, you're going to go crazy. You're going to love this band. <laughs> and so it's good hearing these stories, Dave, I should be interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. But, so I had the perspective of coming back and being like, and it was funny cause I knew Brad as like a metal dude, you know, and I was like, he's playing in a hardcore band, right? Right. <laughs> and and that's the thing, yeah, that's that conflation of the two. And yeah, that's how we came up with what we came up with. And then you throw in that big slap of grunge and you had a pretty interesting sound going on. Yeah, towards the end, definitely. And, and um, you know, uh, well, you know, it's, it's interesting because, um, but I think that with the first, for, for anyone who's not aware, uh, and I'll post links to, to the records so people can hear them, but the title of the first With Authority record was Feel the Pain, and the song was definitely a song about racism and, and remembrance of the Holocaust and, and, and those issues. So the anti-Nazism thing was, was a huge part of it. And, yeah. you know, it might seem like, you know, like, well, it's funny because I always make fun of like, um, you know, I do this podcast devoted to the author Philip K. Dick and he wrote a, his second novel was about Hitler and exposing like why Hitler was bad. And I always joke about like, did, did people need a book to say why Hitler was bad? But remember in Indiana, we were surrounded by the Klan. We were surrounded yeah. 
um, to the north of us, we had Martinsville, which was a town that black football players didn't want to go and play in. They were afraid to at the time. And to the south of us, down towards Louisville, there was a huge neo-Nazi movement. We had, in fact, lost one of our good friends to the neo-Nazi movement for a couple of years. He's back with us, um, <laughs> right? Came back to the side of justice. But, you know, it was personal those. for us. You know, it was. It, it was very personal for us, the, the whole fighting Nazism thing. And we had actual fights and, you know, with, um, with the Nazis, but people have to remember, and I wrote a whole novel about this, my novel, Punk Rock Ghost Story. There's a difference between punk rock before the internet and punk rock after the internet. And what people don't realize yeah. about punk rock in the 80s is that the mainstream, which in Indiana is redneck, you know, pseudo jock culture, fucking hated us, <laughs> right? Yeah. And we were constantly yeah. in actual battles and fights with the rednecks. Now, I'm not saying we were always right, um, but... This was, this was an actual thing that's the difference between, and you know, it's funny, I was just listening to an interview with Kevin Seconds where he said, he said as positive as he is, he still feels like punk rock's too safe now, <laughs> right? And well, it's actually been disappointing for us to see the current situation um, mm -hmm. and not really feeling the support of, of punk rock as I knew it when in the area you're talking about, you know, back then, we were all motivated against racism for the most part and fascism. And nowadays it's definitely um, not like that uh, anymore. Definitely safe as you're, as you're describing. Yeah, no, if there was a Nazi around, we punched them. Then we didn't, we didn't talk shit. We didn't like, you know, we took care of business and that's, and it's, it's really hard to see how much people like, don't have that confrontational attitude towards it these days. It's, it's, it's very strange, but, um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, so um, you started the band, you did a couple records, the, the sound evolved yeah. with, with authority. And um, you guys were also ahead of the curve a little bit and embracing some of the heavy, sludgy, grungy, like, yeah. like um, not really sound garden ish, but like just that, what now is considered stoner metal, right? Like the bands like High on Fire, yeah. bands like that that are big now, like With Authority was doing that towards the end um, of your career when, when you had um, Bob Fouts, rest in peace, um, playing drums. And, you know, so the sound changed, but you guys were a band for several years, right? I mean, yeah, but we, you know, we mixed that sound. It wasn't, we sounded like that. What I liked about it is we took those elements and we sped them up and then we emblazed them with some Cro-Mags and New York hardcore. And then we ended up with what we ended up with. So, you know, I think that was what was different where we were ahead of the curve is that we weren't just necessarily part of the curve. We were infusing different types of music into it so you'd have a song with four or five six different changes like Voivod or something like that but it was still very street hardcore so I think that was what was different about it well and I remember I think the last time I saw you guys was with opening for uh Earth Crisis in 94 at Rhinos our last real show <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah was that the last real nope. show 
Well, you know. Yeah, that was the last show before I moved to uh, moved to Virginia, and then I came back. I think in '96, and we did one. Maybe we did another one in 2000 or '99, something like that. Yeah, well, and you guys left an impression. Um, uh, I remember when I was living in Syracuse, you know, uh, EC's hometown. There was one time where Carl was flipping through my records, and he saw the Weather Authority records in there, and he said. He's like, Count Agronoff, that band was heavy as shit. <laughs> that, was <so> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting show because that was the, um, there was some shit talking going on between us and, and them at the time. And there was some talk about us getting together and, and working things out before the show. So it worked out in their favor that they didn't, but hey, <laughs> it, was a, it was an interesting day. Yeah, well, I remember, like, yeah, I remember some of that because I remember trying to be a little bit of a peace broker saying, like, hey, I got friends in both bands here, and you guys are both all cool guys. And, uh, well, yeah, that's the thing, Dave, is, you know, with a name like With Authority, um, we'd get invited to play with all these bands that didn't realize we weren't straight edge. <laughs> and so it oftentimes created some sort of weird, uh, weird unsettling dichotomies going on in there all right our attitude is hell we'll play with anybody i don't care if you're straight edge and we actually invited our earth crisis and strife to that show so it wasn't like we were the, trying to be dicks about things but tony no not tony i was that gentleman's name now regardless there was just some shit talk and i don't even remember anymore i couldn't even tell you the first thing about it all i do know is that that is one of those things where we had talked about perhaps getting together prior to the show and working things out like men and just never really worked out. Well, you know, it's funny too, because they, they end up with the same thing where people have this reputation about them being way more militant than they are. Um, I mean, they are militant, but at the same time, like Carl's best friend growing up is one of the biggest stoners in Syracuse and they, they skate together, I think to this day. Um, <laughs> right. And um, I and one of the things that uh, I remember when they got to town, one of the things I kept telling them was like, hey, you know, with authority has always respected my edge, you know, and, and me being straight edge and has always, you know, we come from a different perspective, but they, they, they always respected that. And you guys were always cool about playing with everybody and doing that. So that was always cool. And so definitely one of our things that we strive to do is play with everybody unless you're a fucking fascist. And then yeah. well, that's the, the only one. time that's... I saw fascists at my show was when I was flying off the stage with my shoes going into their face. I mean, that's what we're talking about, you know. <laughs> right. So, um, so I should say boots. I don't want to downplay it. It was not shoes. I don't I didn't wear shoes back then. So you ended up in Virginia partially because of what you studied in the school. So can you tell people like what it was you were, were working towards uh, in school? Because I don't think in all those years I, I ever stopped to say, hey, Dave, what are you studying here? <laughs> like, because I always saw you as like the singer with authority, right? Right. Yeah, I wasn't doing a whole lot of school back then. And uh <laughs> And that was one of the things near the end there, you know, I was, I was making friends with the cops and it was time to get on out of Dodge. And so me and my girl picked up and we were going to move to Richmond, um, you know, didn't know anybody, you know, book your own fucking life was out. And so we were going through managers having being, being in a band, you're using book your own fucking life all the time uh, to make connections around uh, different punk scenes. And so we basically just, uh, we went up to Richmond, um, 
we had a gun shown at us there outside of Twisters and a famous Richmond club. Um, and so we decided Richmond wasn't for us. And we ended up in Roanoke, the nearest big town there in Virginia. And just kind of just happened to show and just happened to be there. Um, and I've pretty much been in this region ever since. Um, but that's how that unfolded. Didn't know I was going to be a journalist until I got here. You know, I didn't quite finish school uh, because of, the act, the the things, the extra stuff I was getting into there at the time there in Bloomington, you know, central around the band and, and the activism. So it took me a couple of years still to get on par uh, here with what I wanted to do. You know, I was a political science major, but I didn't finish in that um, with a minor in public and environmental affairs. So when I came out here, I was naturally attracted to uh, potentially journalism, you know, everything that I was into, history and activism and writing and all that could, could conflate into something that made me happy as a man. And so that's where I started drifting towards, uh, towards journalism. I got super lucky with a broadcast journalism job um, and ended up having to, you know, become uh, what you've always hated, if you will. But at the end of the day, I always felt comfortable about knowing that in my heart, what I was doing was the right thing and I was the right guy doing it. I may not look it uh, at that time. Um, but as I've said to my wife many, many times, you know, being hardcore and punk rock doesn't matter what you look like, you know, it matters what's in your heart and how you act and who you are and what your morals and your character is about. And not so much the fact that you wear a tie to work. Um, so I was able to get through that and still feel good about, me being me because at the end of the day you got to make money for your family and stencil art and being in a band that plays in front of five or six people a night just doesn't pay the bills you know right well no and i respected the hell out of the fact that you became a photojournalist and we're out there covering stuff and um it's funny because for me like uh being that you know you're you're dave from with authority you're dave hayden with authority right and uh, and for me, it was funny because, you know, I'm, I think at the time I was already back living here in California, but somebody sent me a link to you covering a hurricane. And that was the first time okay. I that you were a reporter. And I was like, and it, it was funny because I remember watching and going, well, of course, he's got balls. He doesn't mind covering that kind of story. <laughs> like, well, and it was attractive. And that's what sent me overseas too, you know, pursuing journalism into the conflict zones. Um, it was all a progression from my time in the Marine Corps through my hardcore life, getting into TV journalism, photojournalism in general, and then applying it all at the end, mm -hmm. covering several conflicts over, you know, well, we'll, over a decade of time. Yeah, well, we'll get there because that is I, very fascinating, but... Uh, so when you started with the photojournalism, you were just doing kind of like the local news and that kind of stuff and working your way up, I'm sure, right? And, and, yeah, I was uh, a bureau guy, what's called a one-man band. Just I had 15 counties to cover, and I had to turn two or three stories for the, for the evening news every night, do live shots. You know, I covered Virginia Tech sports for almost 20 years uh, because when you're a one-man band, you do it all. You cover it all. So I got pretty pretty good at news gathering, uh, good at telling stories, uh, good at general news and understanding current events, and good at sports. I mean, there was a it's pretty well rounded career. Yeah, left it about three years ago. Right. Well, and 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 so I mean that storytelling aspect is sometimes underrated. Um, 
uh, I have a friend here who's a photojournalist here who's just uh, started turning towards writing his first novel and he came to me for advice and I was like, dude, you're a storyteller, <laughs> right? You know how to do this. Right. You tell stories every day on the news, right? And, um, you know, I just had to like kind of assure him like, you know, you've already done this, you know, you just have to, you have a different format now. And, uh, right. and, and, and so, well, because you cover that area um, very specifically, there was one really huge news story that, um, and I followed your coverage very closely and I know it had a big impact on you and that's the Virginia Tech shooting. Um, you know, that was your, that's your beat, right? You know, and yeah. at the time that was one of the most massive school shootings um, being that even that it was a university, you know, that's still a school shooting. But, um, you know, you had a, a front seat ticket to that. And I'm wondering how that impacted you, like seeing that story so close up. Well, you know, when you're, um, when you come home from covering war mm -hmm. and then you, you wake up one morning and it happens in your backyard. Yeah. That's how it affects you. Yeah. So you had already been covering in, in war zones and, and like, you know, that, yeah. So let's, well, yeah. So let's return. We'll get back to Virginia Tech in a little bit, but since I didn't know that you had already gone overseas. So what was, how did that decision happen? Like to, to cover the stories overseas, like um, in the conflict zones, like that seems like a, a really awesome opportunity for a journalist. Well, you know, we had 9-11, so after 9-11, um, I had just left journalism for the first time. My contract ran up. It did not get renewed, so I was looking for some freelance work, and 9-11 came along, and so I started going overseas. Um, I started a website called uh, A Battlefield Tourist, and basically, I just wanted to go to shitty places in, in the world and tell stories about the people there because there's good people everywhere doing good things. And so I wanted to kind, kind of uh, take that direction with what I was doing and just get there and do it in a battlefield situation, but from a very ground level point of view. Um, so I wasn't really so much interested in the trigger time and getting shot at and stuff as I was finding the stories within the environment that I was in. Um, so I, and, and I spent a lot of time documenting everyday um, military life and civilian life in both Iraq and Afghanistan, forgetty images, because I knew that one day these conflicts would be history and they're going to have to go back and fill the void with imagery. And if everybody else is out there looking for rockets and shooting and dead people and all that stuff, you know, nobody's really filling in the the pictures of the important stuff, which is the people that are affected. So that's basically the point of view. I was taking everything during these times. And so I would go off, collect this imagery and submit it to, to Getty. And it's been there ever since. And so mission accomplished in that regard. So that's basically how I made my decision to do what I did. Um, did you? Have I, to I took a job. Go ahead. Did you have to get yourself there or was, was Getty paying for you to, to, to get there or? Well, the first time I went, 
I I liquidated my savings, uh, started the website, and I went as an independent journalist with no backing. Um, the second time I went, that was to northern Iraq, just as the war was was unfolding. I went through the uh, northern border from Turkey into uh, towards Erbil. Like the following year, I was hired by a Turkish news agency to be the bureau chief in Kabul. Uh, they were having difficulties at the time uh, getting Americans uh, embedded with U.S. troops because uh, you know they're Turkish, so they are a Muslim country. Um, so they were having difficulties getting the U.S. military to to trust them. So they hired me, and uh, that's basically what I did, and that's where battlefield tours really took off because I literally, all I did was wake up the next day to figure out how I was going to get somewhere else in the country that I heard was blowing up. And so I was constantly running around the country, uh, following the historic events leading up to their very first presidential election. Wow. That's, 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 that's a really amazing experience. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure you saw amazing, incredible things like both positive. Incredible things. Yeah. yeah, lots lots more positive than negative. I had some pretty harrowing experiences, but um, you know, when you get to see women in Afghanistan in the Taliban homeland of Kandahar voting for the first time in their lives in the first presidential election in that country's history, and I was a man with all of these women, and you know that's taboo out there, but they invited me in so I could see this with my eyes. I mean, that's important stuff to me. That's a big deal, and it's a it's something I'm very, very proud of in the sense of having witnessed. Oh God. Yeah. That sounds amazing. And, and, you know, uh, I, it's going to sound really corny and, and funny saying it this way, but being as somebody who, you know, grew up listening to with authority and you guys were our hometown band and, you know, like, you know, we felt a certain amount of ownership over you guys as being part of our scene um, being yeah. able to like point to the things that you're doing and say like, Hey, that's, that's one of ours, you know, it's something that, that I think we were proud of too, you know, like the people. From yeah. I might've been from Michigan, but at the end of the day, everybody that knows me knows that almost all of my brothers and sisters are in Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah. Well, no, no, that means a lot to, me, to us too. And, and, uh, but you know, and so for you to be able to have like these, experiences and these things like it's interesting to me to just knowing who you are like to kind of imagine most of the time when I picture a journalist in this situation I think of them as just being somebody who just went to journalism school you know and was doing all this but with your experience as a marine with your experience as a punk rocker and you know it must have been really fascinating to see like on the ground revolutionary history like that and come at it from these two different very different upbringings that that, that you had specific yeah. you know and that's the thing dave it's been um you know when i go the song that they'll be playing was that i did it my way that's for goddamn sure right right well and, and you had uh, you know with this experience too like I think probably, and I'm just guessing that, and I'm sure you had lots of probably pretty scary moments, you know, being in these conflict zones, but I think too, at the same time, like that, um, 
that training as a Marine, that, um, that DIY, I don't give a fuck attitude that you had as a punk rocker probably helped Have. you in the situations. Were there any situations where you were like, I'm glad I am who I am because somebody else might not have been able to make it through this? You know, I think um, maybe not specific situations, but some of the stupid stuff that I did in the sense of getting in there. I mean, I didn't have backup the first time I went. So you've got, you've got this American guy walking along the border of Iraq and Turkey, trying to figure out how to get in. I fabricated UN credentials to try to get through a Turkish checkpoint uh, and into Iraq, for instance, just dumb stuff like that. Um, that, you know, I think, I don't know if it's military or what prepared me for it, but I think it was the, you know, the overall education throughout my life that gave me that, those types of, whether they were smart kahunas or not so smart kahunas, I don't know. They were kahunas nonetheless. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think when it comes down to DIY, I've lived my entire life in that. My entire career was built on bureau work, meaning that I didn't have any oversight. Um, I was the guy that was representing that particular area. And most of my jobs in my professional career um, have lived along the DIY way in the sense that you take care of yourself. Uh, you, you use the, the tools you have at your disposal to do the best you can. Right. And so, you know, you're seeing all this and then you, you're cut, you come back home and then there's this story like with Virginia tech and not just story, this, this thing that happened. And, um, I, and I bring it up again because I remember at the time because we were tangentially connected through social media and online stuff and whatever, like my memory of Virginia tech was very much colored by the fact that I was getting a closer, a local perspective from you. And I had, you know, I had local, you know, I think everybody in the country at this point, we've had so many mass shootings all over the place. We had had, I was living in Portland at the time when the clack on the small one happened. And I had a situation where uh, three months after the clack on the small shooting, I, I was in there with an autistic student who had a vocalization where they just like yelled out really loud and literally people were jumping under tables because it was the same place. And you know, you see that, that kind of trauma that comes with these situations, like, and, and I know like the, the, the shooting at Virginia Tech had a very um, large impact on the community, but Virginia is a second amendment state, I take it, being that it's in the South. I wonder how, um, you know, that firsthand perspective of, of that shooting and you're coming back from a war zone, like, could you explain to us, like, that, how that experience was for you, like, covering it and being there for it? Because I think it's important. So, you know, I think um, when it comes to Virginia Tech story, you know, the gun story is one thing and everything else is another thing. You know, we've, we've got a big issue in this country when it comes to guns. And, I'm pro second amendment. I just don't take it to the way these purists take it. You know, I believe in self-defense in a big way. Um, I just don't believe in this uh, free for all hillbilly uh, cowboy shoot 'em up game. 
it's uh it's gone over the edge you know they've they've convinced the country that you need guns to protect yourself and then they convince you for another round of gun buying to protect yourself from all the guns that are out there and the more guns that are out there the more ammunition they've got excuse the pun to say hey you need a gun to protect yourself so it's like a self it's like a snowball effect and, and we're in big big trouble because uh you know, we could debate forever why we're in big trouble and the decay of moral, morals and ethics and all that stuff. And the, the value of human life has gone all to hell and everything. Um, the mixture of it all sucks. But to tech itself, you know, my best friend died two days, three days before that that shooting. And um, well, actually, maybe it was just two days. And I was mourning him um, when I got the call that morning on Monday morning. It was a Monday morning. And, um, you know, I couldn't really respond to it because of the deal I was dealing with, with my, with my friend at the time. So that date is actually connected to two significant events in my life. But for the following two months after that, every single day, you know, you're there dealing with the national media that's tearing apart your community. That's having a lot of difficulty trying to get over such a, a tragedy, you know, when you're talking about 32 people, 32 unheard of in this country, other than the race massacres of the early 20th century and the late 19th century, these, you know, we've never seen anything like that committed by citizens on other citizens. And, uh, or people on citizens, I should say. You know, we can talk all day about the U.S. Army's extermination of the Native tribes and all that, but in the sense of people perpetrating crime on one another, uh, that's a big deal. 32 people, man. And how it how it affected me and what changed me that day is, and and it's caught on all over the the country since, is that whenever there's a mass shooter, we don't we would we don't ever utter that person's name, you know? And that's something that we started at our station when that happened. And we refused as reporters to say that man's name. Um, and that's something that sticks around today. You'll see it when they're covering um, events now, they, they typically shy away from giving that person uh, any sort of notoriety uh, for what they've done in you know, heinous crimes. Yeah, and so that was a conscious decision that 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 the reporters there made. Like, that's it. We're not yeah. his name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating because. Yeah. Well, and and I think you know the the thing that really bummed me out for the way that the country's moving is that, you know, I think the the shooting in Connecticut, the one with the elementary school kids, and, and you know when I when that happened, and I was like, if that won't change gun laws. If that won't change the way things are going, then then I think it's impossible for America to get out of the love affair with. And look, I'm like I'm with you. I'm not anti. Um, I'm not anti guns. Um, and uh, but I'm I'm anti insanity. And I think that the I think America has shown that we are not responsible with the the um, with the amount of guns that we have in this country, and that you know, regulation is required because we're not being responsible. But, um, you know, if we're going to act like grownups, then we can be treated like grownups with our gun laws, in my opinion. 
Um, and that yeah. kind of shooting, which, you know, me being um, a big science fiction nerd, there's a science fiction author, John Bruner, who wrote a book called Stand in Zanzibar in 1969. And there was a throwaway chapter where he predicted mass shootings in 1969 as a result of, you know, a lot of the environmental and just the different things that were coming. And so for me, it's always interesting to see, like, he was a very smart prophetic science fiction writer, but he saw in 1969 that this was a thing that could happen that, you know, and the glorification um, of it, of, you know, was something that he kind of saw happening. So the fact that the reporters responded that way is, is really cool because it's almost like right. a, a good reaction. Now let's get into a little bit about like, cause you know, you're a very vocal person still to this day. Um, and you know, and I think that that's really awesome and important. And, um, you know, uh, um, the, the, the country right now is in a situation where I don't think that if in 1989, when, when, when I was singing along to With Authority songs and about racism and the system and all that, I didn't think that we would ever get worse, right? I thought we would progress and get better. And yes, and we did, to a degree, society did make strides. But at this time, I almost think that we're in a worse situation than we've ever been. Um, during Reagan, I didn't, I, you know, I hated Reagan. I hated G.W. Bush, but I never thought the country was on the verge of civil war. Um, right. And now I'm worried about it. Um, and I think as somebody who has not only been an activist against racism for, for, for three decades, but has traveled overseas and seen conflicts in these other countries, covered violence, covered the news on a local level. Like, how, what do you make of the end or the the end of this first four years of Trump? Well, I can tell you that changed the other day when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Yeah, you know, everything I thought about prior to that day has changed and I'm still trying to process it. Um, you know, Dave, I think if uh, Trump steals this election, which is the only way he'll get elected through suppression, through the massive psyops campaign underway internally and externally on the people of this country, if we don't come out in force, and I say we as in people that truly believe in freedom uh, if we don't come out in force with a 70% landslide, we're going to lose. And this will, that'll be an end of chapter game for, for this country because um, look where Trump has put us to this point. Uh, and we don't have enough time left in this Earth's future to deal with another four years of this guy uh, tearing everything apart uh, for the immediate dollar, which is what this is about. It's about money. It is about money. It's about money and people that are too fucking stupid to know it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah that's where we're at. And I think we're looking at the balkanization of America in the sense that, um, like, the different, you know, it's funny because at one point I talked to somebody about, um, you know, uh, when we look at this, you know, there was a time in the Soviet Union in 1986, if you had said to somebody like, hey, this country has two, maybe three years to go, they would have laughed at you. They would have thought it was impossible. And um, 
you know, and, and instead we ended up, you know, with um, a, uh, you know, that country fell apart. That can happen here. That can happen here if we don't, um, you know, and, and look, I've joked with people about being in California that we may be okay because we might be able to become our own country. But then you look at with the wildfires that are going on, this, this state cannot probably survive on its own without the help, you know, in the situation. And these kinds of crises, whether you're talking about the coronavirus, you're talking about George Floyd and the, 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 the police violence that's epidemic. Um, you know, we have the worst possible leader. And I do think that if we look back, we're going to find out historically in the future that this was a huge psyops from, uh, Absolutely. Uh, from Putin. And, and, and it's not just me being a tinfoil hat guy. I, I, no. I, I, I think it's pretty obvious from the outside. He is a Manchurian candidate. There's no doubt about this. This man is compromised financially. And he's such a narcissistic sociopath that he will he this is the type of guy that will literally set his boat on fire as it sinks. Yep. And that's what he's doing. Yeah. So do you have any uh, closing words you want to give us about, um, like, um, do, you, do, do you want people to find you online or what you're doing or, or whatever? No, actually, I've, uh, you know, I'm being very careful about what I say these days. Um, my online profile is pretty much gone. We're working hard um, through anti-racism and anti-fascism, uh, doing what we have to do. We believe firmly that it's not good enough just to be not racist, that you have to physically be anti-racist, even if it's a little bit every day, get out and do something. And so right now we're organizing and like everybody else is um, for peaceful anti-racist action, knowing that every day it could be getting closer to not so much. So, you know, we're not in Portland right now, thank God. And we don't have the problems we've got down here in Virginia as they do in Portland or a number of the other communities around. And that's probably because we live in a very, um, Republican area. And uh, so in a weird way, they feel in complete control and there's very little we can do about it except through little actions. You know, yesterday, a couple of us were running security for a small uh, peaceful demonstration downtown Roanoke. Um, and it just sucks that it, we've got to take our Saturday nights and go down there shoulder to shoulder with people who are fighting for equity equity and equality to ensure that people don't attack them. I mean, and we're literally there, yeah. um, as you're seeing all over the country. So I think that, you know, my message to people is that the toxic masculinity and the proto-fascism of strength, peace through strength, that type of attitude has got to go. And that's the attitude that's driving the violence that's being fed by the people that want it to make profit off of it. And I think uh, the next few months will be some of the worst of our lives. Mm. Well, uh, Dave, uh, 
I really appreciate your time. Like, it was really exciting to hear, get some, some of the updates on what you got going on and, and, um, and, and what you've been doing over the years. It really means a lot to me. With Authority was a huge part of my uh, upbringing and um, is legendary for Indiana. And I think um, some Indiana folks will be excited to hear, hear, uh, hear from you um, and hear what you've been up to. So uh, I appreciate it. I think I don't know if you're muted, but um, but oh, and you married Christine, who's a very good person and one of my old old, old friends, and I'm very happy for the two of you. <laughs> so you're mute. You're muted, Dave. So, but um, thanks for coming on the show.